Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, hometown of Gerald Ford, Jillian Anderson, Al Green, and the kid who plays the werewolf in Twilight. You know that? No, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, local what? theater kid. Uh, he moved when he was like two. What's Twilight? Mormon vampires. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM. You can also check out WPRR's 24-7 streaming at publicrealityradio.org. Can they bite somebody who's just had a Coke, like with caffeine in it? (laughs) We'll have to do a Twilight episode. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, the man with no 12-year-old children in his house, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Wait, we're not not—we're supposed to get rid of the kids now? I have children. Twilight has become an ever-present uh, force in my life. And fresh from his hike on the Appalachian Trail, we have Jeremy Bean. Hi. I yeah. thought he was in Argentina. No, I, I oh, wasn't on the Appalachian Trail, but I did come back infested with ticks. You did? Three to be exact. Oh, wow. No Lyme disease? Uh, hopefully not. I'm on antibiotics. Okay. All right. Well, off to a, to a roaring start here. Uh, on this episode, we've got coming up later on, we have another entry into the Gospel of Doubt. Uh, but first, we're going to look at some emails. This one came to us from... A 14-year-old atheist out in Detroit. A 14-year-old atheist girl. We don't hear from a lot of uh, of the young folk, at least not that young. I, I'm aware that we have a few younger listeners, and I think the advice we would give to all of them is uh, don't let anybody look down on you for your age. Absolutely. Uh, there's some really smart young people out there, and if they're tackling a podcast like ours, mm-hmm. not to say that ours is the most sophisticated in the world, but just that right there is pretty encouraging to me. Yeah, I know when I was 14, I uh, I would have no interest in this sort of thing. And kids, our podcast is the most groovy. See, he is hip. I, wow. Wow, I underestimated you. Uh, so uh, she writes, I'm a 14-year-old atheist, and I've been an atheist since I was around 11 or 12, something like that. She says that she read the Bible, uh, thought that it was crap, and that there was no way she could possibly believe in something that made her a second-class citizen and said that her non-Christian friends were going to hell. Her parents are Baptist Christians. She says, I was dragged to their church every Sunday, kicking and screaming when I was little. Literally, I hated Sunday school. So boring. (laughs) Amen to that. Uh, Thankfully, they've stopped taking me since I finally got up the guts to tell them I didn't believe and never would. That, coming from a 14-year-old, is is pretty impressive right there. I mean, for yeah. someone to to have that kind of conviction and to be able to go to her parents and say, this is what I believe, mm-hmm. that's I, – I wouldn't have been able to do it. Anyway, she says, my question is this. My grandpa belongs to one of those the end is coming churches – He's always talking about it, and he's always talking about God and stuff. So my question is, how do I get him to stop telling me God is with you and such without giving him a heart attack? I don't think I can tell him I'm not a Christian. He freak. And he's old. I don't want to somehow flip his heart out. She says, my aunt, my grandpa's daughter, died of cancer back in January and, quote, went to heaven. I don't think I'll ever get over never seeing her again. And he's all, oh, Jack, girl's name is Jackie. You'll see her in heaven again. And I won't, says Jackie, because if God really does exist, and I highly doubt it, I'm going to hell anyway. So how does one talk to relatives um, who are staunch believers 
um, about sensitive issues like this. Uh, a relative has just died. A relative that that uh, Jackie, our, our listener, loved and misses, and she has to deal with not only losing her her aunt, but she has to listen to her grandfather constantly tell her, "Oh, it's okay. You'll see her in heaven." Right. So this is complicated by a grieving process. And, yes. and first of all, I mean, that's very courageous of Jackie facing mm-hmm. a death of a loved one. I think that's hard for a lot of adult humanists Absolutely. Uh, to, to handle uh, is how to, how to deal with that and to just boldly see it for what it is and that, yes, your loved ones aren't coming back. Um, that's a tough thing. So, boy, I don't know. I read this one and uh, I knew instantly we had to talk about it on the podcast because this is an issue that people of all ages deal with. Yeah. But I got to say I'm pretty hesitant to offer any sort of advice. And why is that? Well, it's because these are such personal things and they're individual situations yeah. that I'm not sure – I'm not sure we're qualified to say, oh – this is this is what you should do in this situation. I, I do think, on the other hand, what we can do is help clarify her own thinking on mm-hmm. the matter. You know, sure. to help tease out her values in the situation, and and maybe uh, so that she can come to a clear decision on her own. Uh, questions like, uh, what's more important to you, uh, keeping a good relationship with your grandfather, right. or being more intellectually honest with yourself and saying, look, Grandpa, this is what I believe. Deal with it or don't. What's what's the priority? Is it keeping your grandfather who I'm, I'm assuming even though she has differences that she seems to want to retain a relationship with him or at least not give him a heart attack? Well, one of the first things to point out is that there's nothing in her email that would – say to me that her grandfather's comments are malicious in any sort of way. Right, that too. Um, he's probably has no idea of where she's coming from. Mm-hmm. And in his mind, he's probably doing a lot to comfort her. And uh, right. he's saying what he thinks he should say. And so that's one thing to acknowledge there. If there's no, if there's no animosity, if, if, mm-hmm. if it's not an attack, then that is, that's a different situation. So until he starts – damning you to hell for whatever and uh, all of that, then then take it in the spirit it's intended. And this is meant to be nice. And the second thing is uh, she seems to be pretty clear that she doesn't want to tell him. Right. She somehow wants to yep. tell him to tone down the religious rhetoric. It's probably very hard for her to hear him talking about being reunited with her aunt in heaven. Yeah. And and so that bothers her. And so I guess I guess the real question is how do you tactfully say ease off without saying I don't right. I don't believe you. Um, yeah. And your parents, while they are believers yet, they are okay with you not being a believer. Or they're at least aware of it. Or at least well, and they're not forcing her to keep going to church. Yeah. That's so that's true. that's a good thing. You know, they're at least that respectful of your beliefs that they're not going to keep dragging you and kicking and screaming to church. I don't know. Are your parents someone that you can talk to and say, what can I say to grandpa or could you talk to grandpa to tone down this talk? Every time you're hearing, oh, you'll be together in heaven, that's reopening the wound. Well, maybe one option is just to share that much. Sure. You know, Grandpa, I'm glad – I know you're trying to reassure you, me. I know you're trying to comfort me. But I don't think – I don't like thinking about it that way right now and I have to deal with this pain yep. Let on me my grieve. own terms. Yeah. That, you know, she's going to know whether or not that's that's going to be an option, you know. If you don't want to give, uh, give the old guy a heart attack, then sometimes you do just have to uh, swallow your pride a little and – and accept the intent more than the the words themselves. It sucks. It's a it's a bad situation to be in. 
Yeah, I just speaking from personal experience, like my dealing with family, and I had to deal with this at a much later age. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine going through this when I was fourteen. I, uh, incidentally, Jackie, uh, when I was fourteen years old, I would have been one of those Bible banging Christians that was driving you nuts at school. Me too. So I guess on a side note, um, if you ever get frustrated with your friends or your peers, your religious peers at school. Just keep in mind that people change quite a bit when when they leave yeah. high school. Um, Not all of them are going to stay that way. <laughs> Many of them will, but uh, but uh, a lot of them will. But will they might you know they might change their mind because you have the courage to challenge them, and as long as you know you're doing it in a respectful way, that's not going to alienate them. I, I'm actually seeing that uh, just as a side note in, in my own life. I have a lot of friends who you know five years ago were were quite religious. And then as I've been more open about my beliefs, they've started – I've actually had friends say I've never met an atheist before. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are moving further and further away from religion, some who have uh, given up altogether. And not. And I'm not saying it's, it's all me, but because I'm there and because I'm willing to talk and because they know that I exist and you can be a decent human and not be religious, it does make a difference. And if you're – one of Luke's colleagues researches on this that when when you have one person who goes against the uh, kind of the accepted group belief, the entire group's ability to question or think critically about a situation increases. Oh yeah, the minority influence. Yeah, so it's interesting if you have a group of people uh, that uh, because decision making is often made, you know, where where you base it around, around conformity. Mm-hmm. Well, I do, I, you know, I have this doubt, but clearly Dave doesn't have this doubt or Uncle Jeremy doesn't have this doubt, so I'm going to keep quiet about it. Right. Whereas if you have one person, even in a minority, that says, you know, I've been thinking about this, it opens the floodgates for everybody yeah, else. Yeah, it helps prevent groupthink, yeah, which is what high school is, let's face it. And groups make higher quality decisions when they have a variety of, Absolutely. of, of different inputs rather than wow. just one. Argument for affirmative action. So more power to you in school as far as dealing with family. I mean my my own personal experience is that it is not worth burning bridges with family over metaphysical issues. Um, Now granted, that's a two-way street and my family was good enough to accept – Silence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and uh, and and if I wasn't in that situation, I know your family background is a little bit different, Dave. So yeah. you might have a different take on this. But I think if your family wants to maintain a relationship and that's important to you, life is short. Yeah, and we don't have we don't have an afterlife to count on where we're reunited with our loved ones and can make everything right. So. I'm of two minds about this. With my family, um, I have – I think all of my uncles are ministers. Uh, my family is is quite religious and I just don't talk about it. We don't talk about religion and we don't talk about politics. There are plenty of other things to talk about. Right. Uh, that being said, uh, actually just the other day, my fiance got into a fight with her aunt on Facebook, her aunt who is married to a, a preacher because she had posted a link to a, a – anti-religious website and her aunt screamed back on Facebook, God is real, and then got into this whole theological discussion like, well, you can't just say that. You have to back it up. And then her aunt made claims about 300 prophecies from Jesus that have been fulfilled and archaeological evidence of the Bible and and all of this stuff. And I countered. And, and for my fiance, she's been she's, – she's no longer making apologies. And this is family that she's not particularly close to. And at this point, if they don't like what she has to say, then forget them. Right. You know, they don't – if they don't – and it's not that – She's going to family reunions and, you know, standing up on a table burning a Bible or anything like that. But she doesn't feel the need to to hide herself to um, – if they have a problem with things that, that she's saying or doing, then, then that's their problem. And I, I, I think you have to weigh the relationship. If they don't want to be in a relationship because you have differences of religion or – politics, then that's their problem. But when it's you're dependent, you're at home and it comes to your parents or grandparents if you're close, those are things that have to be taken into consideration. So I wouldn't say 
damn it, go out, be loud, be proud, and to hell with anybody who um, might get upset by that because you do have to take some of those things into account. I also wouldn't say shut up because your family is is more important because sometimes it's not. Sometimes the family that you make for yourself is more important. Well, Jackie, thank you for writing and um, it's a great question. Wish we had a definitive answer we could offer you. Right, but that's part of the joy and burden of thinking for yourself. You're at a very young age to be doing this, but we have to think carefully about how we make these decisions and we have to make them our own decisions. So good luck with it. We'd like to hear back from you on on how it goes and what you decided to do. We have another email here. This is from a Belgian listener, Martez, Martiz. I don't know. It's Belgian. So I apologize to all of our French-speaking listeners. Uh, I'm not good with Belgian. That's a French dialect? Yes. It's split between French speakers and Flemish speakers. Flemish? Like like Flanders. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, First off, he writes to say how much he likes the show, and we always like hearing that. Thank you very much. The other reason he's writing is because he finds himself slightly frustrated by the way someone was trying to validate the Bible in a forum he participates in. Uh, The thread on the forum was a list of biblical contradictions. Many people reacted to this and started listing contradictions, most of which were quoted straight from the Bible. One person, let's call him Phil, started to complain that we just didn't understand the Bible. This person was the website's webmaster. He used a theory called integral theory to back up his claims that these alleged contradictions actually were not contradictions at all. He claimed that the Bible was written in a time that predates rationalism. A pre-rational text cannot be understood using rational thought. So how can you argue a case when you are not allowed to practice rational thinking? I found a lot of information on integral theory but it was all one-sided. I found no criticism on the topic. Is there any? I suspect there is. Well, there's only a little bit from what I could tell. I'd never really? heard of this integral theory before. And, is it uh, a theory that's worth arguing against? I mean, I don't know how rational thinking. I, and, I don't know how worth arguing against it is, but we're um, going to do it anyway. Yes. It, And part of the reason why I thought this was important was because looking into this a little bit more, integral theory is a real new agey type concept. Okay. And I I think as West Michigan Bible Belt people that we are, we encounter a certain type of religiosity and we deal with apologetics or counter-apologetics in a way that's familiar to us. And I think there's a lot of people living in the West Coast in places like – Boulder, Colorado, uh, which I visited, where it's an entire different beast that they're dealing with. It's easier to argue against fundamentalism because there, there's specific claims that can be attacked. But this type of thing is like Jello. We've we've yeah. d- we had experience with Jello a couple months ago, where where yeah. the more vague you get, the more unfalsifiable you get. It's like wrestling with somebody who has you know who has grease all over. You can't get a good hold on them, uh, and so it, it becomes nebulous. Some of the terms they use are just they mean nothing. The fundamentalists who are drawing right from the Bible, it's easy to go to the Bible and say, no, see, here's where you're wrong. When you get into this uh, postmodern stuff, it gets a lot trickier. If there's one positive thing I can say about fundamentalists is that they're (laughs) evidentialists. Yeah, yeah. They at least accept that the world is a certain way and we can be right or wrong about that and that we need to – refer to some sort of authority or source of evidence to back up our claims, and we're not going to necessarily get that in other perspectives. I'd rather talk politics with a liberal Christian and talk religion with a fundamentalist Christian. So integral theory. Integral theory is part of a movement called the integral movement. Integral thought is claimed to provide a new understanding of how evolution affects the development of consciousness and culture. Mm. While there's a lot of different thinkers in quotes in this movement, most of the stuff I read focused on the ideas of Ken Wilber, 
who I'd never had heard of before, but apparently Luke has. Yeah, back in the uh, Stone Age when I was in college, we had a personality psychology course, and the guy was very into things like Jungian theory and transpersonal psychology. We had a reading from Ken Wilber's book, The Atman Project. Was he also the guy with the talking horse? That's a uh, different Wilbur, I think. No. Oh. Right. If you look up anything on this, you're going to almost instantly get a headache. So I'm going to try my best to summarize these ideas that I, I think are almost incoherent. Push so, through the migraine. Yeah. So anybody who's a devotee of integral theory and wants to attack my summary, feel free. I'm just going to try to do my best. Basically, integral theory is it's a response to metaphysical naturalism. They believe that right now human beings can't properly evolve. And the reason why is that naturalistic science has forced us to study the world and society as these mechanistic objects, you know, looking at them from the outside. And we've lost touch with being. We've lost touch with being with a capital B. So we, we we're no longer integrated with the world's soul, and because we uh, we we are looking at it from an outside perspective now, we're able to study evolution and thus taking yes, ourselves out at, of the. We're looking at behavior. We're okay. looking at everything as as just uh, physics with no kind of purpose, totally random. Sure. Whereas we need to embrace. Uh, uh, Ken Wilber very much accepts the idea of, of teleology. He sees mm. a purpose in every area of creation well, that we are we are designed for some sort of end. Teleology, the idea that we're all working towards something great, that everything yes. is working. Uh, the mountain is working towards the transcendent. Right, like the final cause of yes. Aristotle type of thing. They elevate the status of mystical experience. He's of the mind, Wilbur is of the mind, that we need to draw upon the traditions of all the world mystics and take their claims as just as credible as the evidence that we get from the sciences. And why not? He wants to harmonize Eastern and Western philosophical perspectives, and he wants to harmonize them with all major world religions. And the goal is to then take this kind of harmonized hodgepodge of all different perspectives and integrate it into kind of a developmental psychology framework or paradigm. So in other words, uh, all these religions, all these different philosophies are showing us how we are on this determined path to, to grow in right, some sort of right, right. direction. So uh, essentially he wants to synthesize all knowledge and he calls this his theory of everything. So to quote Ken Wilber from his book, A Theory of Everything – in this theory of everything, I have one major rule. Everybody is right. More specifically, everybody, including me, has some important piece of the truth, and all those pieces need to be honored, cherished, and included in a more gracious, spacious, and compassionate embrace, a genuine theory of everything. The thing to get there is everybody is right. So does that mean that I'm right in thinking that he's a loon? No, no, no. Everybody is right except for people who criticize Wilbur oh, and his ideas. Of course. He's, he's notorious for making personal attacks on any of his intellectual critics. Oh, really? Yeah. Is, is he still around? Yes. Oh, uh, wow. Lives in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, One of the I'll reasons why I mentioned that yeah, earlier. Okay. And in the broad scheme of things, what he sees is that the universe and all beings are undergoing this cosmic evolution. So matter will become living cells, living cells will be conscious beings, and as eventually we will merge with the over-mind or the world consciousness. Um, Everything what, becomes... Wait, I saw that movie, and then we'll be little babies in spheres in space, yeah. <laughs> as, as Richard Strauss is playing. Here's another wonderful Wilbur quote. Maybe the evolutionary sequence really is... From matter to body to mind to soul to spirit, each transcending and including, each with a greater depth and greater consciousness and wider embrace. And in the highest reaches of evolution, maybe, just maybe, an individual's consciousness does indeed touch infinity, a total embrace of the entire cosmos, a cosmic consciousness that is spirit awakened to its own true nature. It's at least plausible and tell me, is that story sung by mystics and sages the world over any crazier than the scientific materialism story? 
That wacky scientific materialism. Which is that the entire sequence is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying absolutely nothing. He plagiarized that. (laughs) Listen very carefully. Just which of those two stories actually sounds totally insane? Well, Ken, yours does. (laughs) Partially because... He's misrepresenting materialism. Well, of course. The entire sequence is told by an idiot. Of course, that's a reference to the fact that there's no guiding intelligence necessarily behind it. Full of sound and fury. I have no idea what that means. It's from Macbeth. Okay. It's uh, it, the the idea that actually it's it's about the life of a human. Yes, it's a, it's a story told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury. We rage. We we. Try to do all of this stuff, and it amounts to nothing. They just told him that Lady Macbeth threw herself off the castle. So. No, actually, they don't say how she died. She's just she, dead. I thought she threw herself off the castle. No. I want to look back at that. Yeah, anyway. But, but, uh, so, so ordinarily, I would just reject this out of hand. This is just complete balls-to-the-walls insanity. I mean, there, but the difference with Wilbur is that he actually claims that these are all based in science. Right. right. Uh, he his way of justifying these beliefs is what he calls orienting generalizations. He says he starts with already agreed upon knowledge that he's gathered from the physical sciences, the social sciences, the testimony of mystics and and research in the humanities. And so everything that he uses as the individual pieces of his synthesis are already agreed upon? Yeah, all of these have unanimous agreement in the sciences. And all he's really doing then is he's taking the different pieces of this jigsaw puzzle and he's seeing how they fit together and tying oh, sure. this. He's not making anything up. No, he's no, just, no, not He's at just all. putting the puzzle together. And so part of the evidence he would use for that is, well, this idea of Holland's related to the term holistic, structures that are individual holes in and of themselves, but they are part of a larger whole. So so the same way like a cell, for example, sure. is an individual entity, but it's part of a larger whole, which is a body, mm-hmm. which can be part of a community or a city, which can be part of a nation. And, and he basically says, well, that's that sort of thinking is accepted in, in the sciences. Uh, and so... We extrapolate that out. Right. Uh, And then a a bulk of the scientific work that he bastardizes is actually in developmental psychology. He thinks thinkers like Kohlberg, Kohlberg's hierarchy of of morals, Mm -hmm. or Piaget, developmental psychology. uh, Sure, sure. Education school. Uh, He even ties in Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences, which I, I think is... Howard Gardner may have some good things to say, but I think he's far from being accepted as as mainstream. The, or the multiple intelligences thing is is pretty mainstream in in, in education. education. But a lot of pseudoscience gets into well, yeah. educational yeah. philosophy. Yeah, because they they want to think that everybody there's all these different types of intelligence, musical and kinesthetic and athletic and all right, that. And right. that that fits in an education because teachers are dealing with like real pupils. Then you must be good at something. The theory is you might be bad at math. But you're good at something. Well, right? and, and and that some kids are visual learners yeah, visual and some learners. are auditory, and that that certainly is is the there's case. Always, there's a grain of truth to that, but when yeah. you look at things like you know intelligence is often a, also have a high general component, you know, and so all these stage right. theories like Piaget, Kohlberg, there's always a grain of truth to them in that yes, in general, sometimes when children grow up, there's a, a differentiation of different types of, of learning. And, and they can be useful in education system, especially. But, with but they often oversimplify things. Not everybody right. follows a stage. And in, in the case of, there's applications of, um, of Kohlberg's and Piaget's stages to religion. Uh, there's a guy mm-hmm. who, who did stages of faith. It was like Fowler's stages of faith where you have different types of prayer and different higher levels. But again, uh, there's a grain of truth, but then you it gets oversimplified as if everybody goes through these stages in lockstep. Right. Or that what about people that show or, or cultures in the case of Wilbur's theory, cultures that showed like the Greeks. All right, that was t- contemporaneous with the Bible. Right. Why did the Greeks share a high degree of sophistication of learning and thinking at the same time that people are writing Bronze Age texts about Yahweh and burning bushes and right, things like right, that? Right. So my sense is that it's kind of this unfalsifiable hodgepodge where you can say, well, if you show any type of primitive religion, they'll say, well, that's just a throwback. It's a burst of primitive thinking yeah, uh, in, a, right. in an otherwise up, upward trend. But how do you get to – you can't pick and choose. Oh, there's a mystic. See, that's an example. Oh, there's a primitive uh, you know, person getting stoned. Oh, 
that's not a good example of evolution. Right. You can't just pick and choose the examples that show increases in sophistication. Right. Right. It would undermine the very basis that he's trying to accept, which is, you know, some sort of empirical observation that supports this idea that we do go through developmental stages and um, you know, his his end is he thinks he thinks humanity is destined to go from the egocentric phase where we just focus on ourselves to the ethnocentric phase where we focus on our 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 clan, our individual culture mm-hmm. to a world centric phase where we take the totality of of our planet and it will ultimately culminate in a being centric understanding being with a capital b where we view the world from this perspective of undifferentiated consciousness, kind of like a, a unified consciousness, sort of like what they might teach in Mahayana Buddhism, a pure mind kind of thing. And a lot of that's very Jungian too, because a lot of people were into Jung's synthesis of the East and West, where mm-hmm. he took Eastern religious symbols and applied them to Christianity. And that's been influential in a lot of people who, again, are, are tired of fundamentalist type of Christianity, and so they want to synthesize it because they think Eastern thought is somehow... More spiritual, more, yeah, more cool, more and kind of, in, and it's, it's vague, yeah. and you can have an enlightenment rather than heaven, and things like that, nirvana. But again, it's to the extent that it's just not really falsifiable. I can make a lot of vague, right. wishful thinking predictions about how humanity is, has evolved, but there's a lot of counter examples as well. And as we pointed out, he's misrepresenting the status of this knowledge that he's talking about. For example, you you would know about this, Luke. Wasn't one of the critiques of Kohlberg? And his theory of uh, moral development is that in those final stages that he talks about, he couldn't find any sort of data to fit those stages. Yeah, a lot of the uh, – for those people who don't remember Kohlberg from their intro site, Kohlberg thought that when you're making a moral decision, uh, like uh, children and adults even go through stages where uh, in earlier stages like they – like a baby uh, – a child would have what's called pre-conventional where younger kids assume that something's wrong because of the consequences. If you broke a vase, even if it's accidental – It's wrong because the vase It's wrong is because the vase is broken. Yeah. And then you proceed through like conventional reasoning where you get a little bit older and something's wrong because mom and dad or – cops say it's wrong. And then Kohlberg's theory was that post-conventional is when you have a higher abstract principle. So people might remember when uh, there's these, you get these scenarios where you're supposed to judge, was a guy justified in stealing medication for his dying wife from a rich man right. if the rich man was not going to sell it? And so you then justify it by saying, yes, in some cases, stealing is Sometimes it's wrong, but sometimes it's right if it's for a higher purpose. Yeah, so like Jeremy, what you were saying is a lot of Kohlberg's things are presumed that people will answer as they get more cognitively developed, they will get more post-conventional in their reasoning. Right. But one of the critiques of that is, is, yeah, is that first of all, not a lot of people make it to what he would measure as post-conventional. There's adults walking around perfectly functional that are still at conventional reasoning. They're not mentally disabled right. or anything, but they something's wrong because God says it's wrong. But how, you know, how do you decide? It seems kind of arbitrary that, yeah. that he's put, placing at the pinnacle of decision-making what he thinks is there's an example of post-conventional It's not a reasoning. result of, you know, this is where people will inevitably develop yeah. if they're allowed. You could say that's kind of an anomaly when, when people yeah, do that. So he's, he's basing his stages in a hierarchy on kind of a, a philosophical belief, not not necessarily an empirical You one. find this a lot in psychology with a lot of these stage theories like Kubler-Ross's stages of dying where you go through bargaining grief or, uh, and, and then uh, like Erickson's stages of developmental psychology where, you know, you go through uh, identity crisis and then you, at your old age is generativity. All these stage theories are, are ways to kind of describe things, but they're not lockstep. A lot of the data when you do empirical research shows that not everybody goes through them. Sometimes they don't reach certain stages right. or they do them in a different order. Well, I, I know in, in studying communications too, there's a lot of these these step theories that are meant to be descriptive and not prescriptive. Yeah. But even even with the addendum that this is the way things usually go, not the way things have to go, not the way things necessarily yeah, but go. You in can practice make people, leaps or yes. go backwards. And you, you see people do this all the time. Like if you're in a hospital then, and they've read just their Kubler-Ross book, they say, well, he hasn't gone through the bargaining stage yet. Or right. you know, he's reached uh, anger, but not the – you know, that's not invariant. And in the case of religion, like we're talking about uh, – He's implying, actually, I think it's rather arrogant to imply that if you don't have a certain view of, of religion, that you're just at some sort of primitive, you, you admired in yep. wallowing in your ignorance, and you'll eventually break through to a 
it sounds what he calls higher stages are where nothing is wrong and everything is right and there's you'll get you know, there someday mystical experiences are mystical it is an outgrowth also of this kind of 60s and 70s ish like with um with the when buddhism and meditation and, and japanese philosophy was all the rage where you know oh you scientists you know it's like a koan it transcends rational thinking and so your rational thinking is good for these things but you you are mired in categorical thinking and that you simply th- this went through right. uh, Gestalt psychology too is all about yes there's intellectualism but then uh, you have to integrate it synthesize it with more emotional ways of thinking or intuition, which is great then because once you disparage reason then you've created a sphere where you can pretty much say, say anything, anything you goes. Want. Yep. Going back to his quote, uh, everybody is right. Everybody has some important piece of truth, and all of those pieces need to be honored and cherished. And included in a more gracious, spacious, and compassionate embrace. I I think there's something that really resonates with people about that because I can think for myself, you know, reading the Bible, reading different scriptures, even things that I disagree with. I, I do find something of merit in there. Right. And, and, and so I think people look at this and say, oh, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great to embrace all these different perspectives and everything and have that broader view? But what I think is really going on here with Wilbur is that he's actually disrespecting a lot of these beliefs because he's not letting them speak for themselves. Uh, if, if you are going to integrate all sorts of knowledge, all beliefs, all world religions into Wilbur's framework, that means you're going to have to end up rejecting an awful lot in those traditions that you perceive as being on a lower developmental Realm. It's kind of paternalistic or patronizing to people like, yeah. oh, you, that's the way that those think, people think now. But this is, this is like the uh, – it, you hear from a lot of apologists the, the different paths to the same truth <laughs> argument where you know, all of these cultures are doing these – they're really worshiping God, my God, as it always comes down to. They just don't know it. Now, this, you know? They're, the, they're not quite hitting the mark, but yeah. it's the same – I think goal. to show these traditions respect, you should try to actually see it yep. as they would have understood it and not just try to. This is what I, I must admit, full disclosure, I found this very appealing when I was transitioning out of Christianity. When I started getting oh, into too. like Joseph Campbell and, and Carl Jung where, oh, it's all, you know, because I had these contradictions. Well, how, these, this faith says one thing and my faith says an opposite. Who's right? And it's very appealing for somebody like that for when Joseph Campbell, I remember when he was being interviewed in those Power of Myth series, he's like, all religions are true in this sense uh, in describing a metaphor for human experience. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people use that as a, as a kind of lifeboat to preserve some type of faith. If you remember mm. Julia Sweeney's yep. show, Letting Go of God, she went through the Absolutely. same phase where it's all good. It's uh, We're all seeking pathways to the truth. If I could use my own theory, I think that's one stage on the theory, on, on, and some people stop at that <laughs> stage where they don't have to let anything go. Okay, well, yeah. maybe there's logical contradictions, but it's all good because it's all pathways to understanding. It's a metaphor, but- We're I, all on a journey. Here's a, another stage that I think is higher than that. Some things are wrong. You know, uh, I think Julia yeah. Sweeney said that, you know, so if if if, if myths are, are ways of saying something that, that's true at a higher level, is the little engine that could, is that yeah. true? Is Star Wars true? You know, once you get to a vague level of, of understanding where things are just pieces of truth, anything could be. It's, it's just anything goes. And it's I, rampant postmodernism yeah. is yeah. where it leads us. Moving back to the Bible and using integral theory to interpret the Bible, saying that these aren't real contradictions, it's just pre-rational thought. I think recognizing these as contradictions is actually what brings out the worth of a lot of these texts. Mm. If you if you look at Leviticus and compare it to Deuteronomy and you see that, yes, these are contradictions, they are changing some of the rules, that doesn't have to be just a, a slam against the, the validity of the Bible. What it does is it helps you to see how were the Deuteronomists challenging the view that came before them. You you begin to see that some of the reforms they make are, I mean, very far from what we today would call humanitarian, but still, uh, compared to some of the beliefs before, they're trying to soften and broaden uh, their sphere of concern to women and to animals. If you look at the prophet Hosea, if you can recognize that it's a real contradiction with what comes before it, you can see how he's challenging the system of ritual. He is trying to recognize that the older laws 
don't treat, for example, in, infidelity on the part of males as seriously as they do as females. Mm-hmm. These, these are really interesting insights to see how these traditions develop. In order to be able to really appreciate them and see the richness of this tradition, you need to notice the discrepancies. It is important. And I guess that's one for us skeptics too is that the value of pointing out contradictions isn't always just to slam the door uh, in the face of, of biblical literalists. They're the signposts that there is change and there is development in the thinking of this tradition. So, Jeremy, you uh, you attended uh, one of the tr- local churches around here that that spins a lot of this integral theory stuff. Do they try to soften their view of Christianity and just or dismiss the harsher parts of the Bible through this type of theory? That is, is this, is this their theology that allows them to to just pick and choose the part that's the most uh, you know, highly developed Christianity, is that how they do this? Yes. So the, the church you're speaking of is a church here in Grand Rapids, Mars Hill Church. Where Mar- Jesus rocks. That's right, where Jesus rocks. It's one of the fastest growing megachurches in the nation. Really? And uh, the, the pastor is Rob Bell. I, maybe some of our listeners outside of Grand Rapids may know who Rob Bell is. But Rob Bell is the author of Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith and Sex God. And he's part of this movement in Christianity called the Emergent Church. It's it's not technically true that uh, Rob Bell is – I'm not sure he fully buys into this Ken Wilber integral theory stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the few examples that I could find online uh, of a Christian using Wilber's thought. Rob Bell mentioned Wilbur in a sermon in 2008 called Beware of the Dogs and basically just talked about this integral approach to humanity where somebody moves from egocentric to some sort of tribal phase to a more world consciousness. He he was seeing something uh, like a biblical pattern in that. The emergent movement is not the same thing as integral theory, but there's enough of a similarity there that I thought it was important bringing it up. I mean, have you guys heard of this before, the emergent church? I, I've heard of the the term. I don't I, I don't know much about it. I know this um, kind of postmodern Christianity stuff that's um, actually pretty prevalent right around here, even where where we're in a quite conservative area. There's a lot of this. Uh, this business going on. It is kind of postmodern in character and as a result, it's damn near impossible to know what it actually means yeah. <laughs> or, or what constitutes an emergent church. And in fact, if you try to look it up and I read post after post about the emergent church and have for a while, I've been trying to pay attention to this mm-hmm. and it's still very hard for me to characterize what they're about. One thing is though that they are definitely trendy. Oh, yeah. They're definitely... They're like Triple X Church. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's funny that you mentioned that because when I first heard about Triple X Church mm-hmm. was they came to Mars Hill Church. Oh, this really? This emergent church here, See? mega church here in Grand Rapids. Christianity can be awesome. There's this great article on Christianity today called The Emergent Mystique. And I think this will be more appreciated by people who live in our our area here, Grand Rapids, Michigan, but I thought I would share it anyways because I this just cracked me up because it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it so accurately represents my impression of the typical Mars Hill church. Right. And this is person. in Christianity Today. Yes, this is in Christianity Today. So this is more liberal or more conservative Christian point of view addressing the liberal Christians. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Christianity Today tries to be – it's evangelical. Yeah, okay. but it, it tries yes. to be pretty embracing. Uh, but but yes, a lot of evangelical Christians are kind of creeped out by this emergent movement. Oh yeah, and, and very critical, rightfully so. Uh, this is by Andy Couch. He starts off one spring morning. I was on my way to visit Mars Hill Church, one of the largest and youngest churches in the country, with ten thousand people meeting weekly. And this was back in two thousand four. So 000? I have no idea how many they have now. How many people do we oh, yeah. have in this city if that many people can go to one church? Have you, have you guys – What are the other churches doing? There's like five people in all of the other churches? <laughs> well, <laughs> mainstream Protestants are hemorrhaging – the traditional go sit down and sing hymn things are hemorrhaging believers or they're grain and the younger people are going to places like this. Right. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever been there? 
No, I haven't been there, but they, maybe they we meet, should do a field they, trip. They meet in the old Granville Mall. Is that where they meet? They had to convert an entire from... mall, yes, to have their, their oh worship gosh. area. Yeah. When I was going a couple of times, uh, it was it was just absolutely packed. They had to do three services, and it was just packed to oh the my... brim for each one. Wow. But yes, he says, uh, as I took the freeway exit, unsure of the exact directions, I noticed a bumper sticker on the car in front of me. Mm. You know what it says. Love wins. Love wins. Love wins. Yes, we see these all over town. And there's even now knockoff bumper stickers of love wins. I oh, think a lot really? of people don't even know that this is like Mars Hill Church. Yep. So, I mean, if if you want a kind of a window into what the culture is like over there, you don't just have an ichthus to tell everybody on your car that you're a Jesus. Right. You have a you Love, Love Wins, Wins bumper sticker to tell everybody that you go to Mars Hill. I had no idea that was connected to Mars Hill until I think you said so. And yeah. They're, they're everywhere. They are. Love Wins, it said, in distressed white type on a black background. <laughs> In the rear window was a decal of an intricate pattern, half art deco, half goth tattoo that incorporated a cross and a fish. Neither the bumper sticker nor the tattoo decal alone would have induced me to set aside my directions and simply follow the car straight to the Mars Hill parking lot. But I knew I had found my mark when I saw the passenger lowering the sun visor, looking into the makeup mirror and meticulously adjusting his hair. (laughs) Gentlemen, start your hair dryers. Not since the Jesus movement in the early 1970s has a Christian phenomena been so closely entangled with the self-conscious cutting edge of U.S. culture. Frequently urban, disproportionately young, overwhelmingly white, and very new, few have been in existence for more than a few years. A growing number of churches are joining the ranks of the emerging church. So first off, that perfectly describes my experience going there a couple of times and Every Mars Hill person I've ever encountered, I'm sorry to make that hasty of a generalization, and I know we're on the radio in Grand Rapids, and so people are going to be really offended. At all 10,000 of them. I'm just telling you what my experience has been so far. I don't know that many of them would take that as a a – mischaracterization i think they would, uh, a lot of them would take that as no and as on the positive side it's the best looking church in grand rapids if you want quality uh, gene pools to breed with there you go so local atheists so go de-ver- deconvert a mars yeah, hill chick. i was gonna say so long as you don't care about uh what's going on in their heads if we're just looking <laughs> but for is our... much theology wise is is a lot going on in the theology in their <laughs> oh, heads yeah. there should well, be easy to deconvert. If you're if you're right? choosing a church because it's a hip social scene and, and it doesn't require that much of you theologically, I guess I would say what's you know That's the place to go, huh? Well part of the reason why it is hip and trendy, I think, it may actually be a bit of cognitive dissonance in people. I mean, you want to be a Christian nowadays, you were raised at evangelical or something. Um, but then you have to deal with all this homophobia, you have to deal with all this stuff Bummer, that the culture dude. is the culture at large is rejecting these attitudes. Well, part of the emergent church, one feature of it is that they are – they call themselves post-systematic theology or post-evangelical. Uh, basically, they just reject having a, a firm set of doctrines. Their mantra is that we don't, uh, we don't have to debate about the doctrines of faith. We want to have a conversation. And so this is kind of nice when Mars Hill Church wanted to switch to a, a situation where they where they could ordain women into certain roles or uh, Rob Bell's more inclusive stance on homosexuality. You know, you didn't have to butt up against that difficult thing called the Bible. Right. Instead, you just said, well, you know, we want to have a conversation about this. Jesus was all about love. It's all good. A quote from Peter Rollins, author of How Not to Speak to God, a emergent church author. Orthodoxy is no longer misunderstood as the opposite of heresy, but rather is understood as a term that signals a way of being in the world rather than a means of believing things about the world. And so one thing that they try to do in the emergent church then is they they focus on living life in Christ rather than believing something right. about Christ. Rob Bell has this wonderful metaphor about a trampoline and the trampoline is what you jump on to uh, to enjoy your life in God. And why focus on the springs that are bouncing you up and down? Shouldn't you be 
enjoying that experience of being on the trampoline. And so when he questions the virgin birth, as he did, yeah, and uses some of the same evidence we would use, actually, to question the virgin birth, noticing mistranslations from the Septuagint, uh, noticing that there's mythological parallels, he uses the same types of arguments we would. Uh, when he ju- tries to justify that to his crowd, he's, you know, it's one spring in the trampoline. What would it matter if we were to remove the virgin birth? Would it mean that you couldn't enjoy your life in God anymore? Can you also that sort remove of the crucifixion, resurrection, and all of the miracles? Because pretty soon you're running low on springs. Yeah, I mean, Not do they have drop-dead things? I mean, fundamentalists have the fundamentals. Yeah. What, are, what are the drop-dead things as a, as a minimal requirement? Can you just think that Christ was a cool guy who lived just like you and me and, and be that type of Christian? It's hard to know the limits, and that's another feature of the emergent church that some evangelicals are very uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. and that is that it blurs the line between who's, who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group, right. who counts as a Christian. Well, so, or, that, or that anything that makes me feel good, like positive psychology, will work it into the service, and that's part of their Christianity. It seems like they're working backwards from like a Dale Carnegie-type course or something like, you know, here are things sure. that make you feel good about yourself and your lifestyle. That's the religion, and if something is, is a bummer, whatever that's not key then then toss it out Brian McLaren in his book A New Kind of Christian says uh, and he's he's a major thinker in the emergent church he says I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion it may be advisable in many uh, but not all circumstances to help people to become followers of Jesus and remain in their Buddhist Hindu or Jewish contexts Wow. To help Buddhists, Muslims, and Christians, and everyone else experience life to the full, he said, I would gladly become one of them to whatever degree I can to embrace them, to join them, and enter into their world without judgment, but with saving love as mine has been entered to by the Lord. The way Jesus became man to talk to us. So if they're refusing on principle to have a set set of doctrines and they're blurring the lines of what even means to be a Christian versus somebody of a different religion, mm-hmm. yeah, of course the question is, well, yeah, well, how do they articulate their beliefs? Where does it come from? And we go back to post-modernity. Again, uh, one of the key features of the of the emergent church is it sounds like it started like an apologetics movement. Right. If you read apologetics books, you know everybody's big into, oh, talking to a post-modern world, right? This is Scott McKnight from his article, Five Streams of the Emerging Church from Christianity Today. He says, Postmodernity cannot be reduced to the denial of truth. Instead, it is the collapse of inherited metanarratives, those overarching explanations of life, like those in science or Marxism. Why have they collapsed? Because of the impossibility of getting outside of their assumptions. And so kind of the, the attitude then is... Well, then don't aggressively preach as an evangelical that this is absolute truth and it must be right. You're going to alienate some people. Rather, share with them your narrative, your story, and bring them into your community of faith. That's why places like Mars Hill are very seeker-oriented. They might watch a movie or something like that for one of their services. Yeah, so bring people into your community. Once they see you living the life in God, they'll want to adopt your story. Mm. So part of the way I was thinking of, like, for the counter-apologist who's trying to deal with these people, part of it might be just take them at their word. Mm -hmm. If you're going to look at counter-apologetics as a defensive thing, as responding to the claims of apologists, these guys have kind of undercut their foundation for any sort of aggressive proselytizing based on ideas. And and so part of it might just be, okay, well, if everybody has their meta narrative and and it's hard to say whose narrative is, is better than anybody else's, then just, yeah, okay, fine. That's your narrative. Uh, I reject it. Right. <laughs> you know, I have a different story. And mine just happens to be closer to what has worked practically in technology, medicine, and everything else. It sounds like what they're peddling, though, is not a, a, a doctrine of specific beliefs, but that what, what kind of what Daniel Dennett calls a belief in belief. Yeah. That, hey, yes. uh, yep. you, we can quibble about the details, Jesus, Buddha, whatever, dude, but you have to believe in belief or be, uh, uh, an openness to 
the seekerism, in other words, is what's being evangelized here. Right. That you have to keep it, and you can't be dogmatic like the atheists and close it down to uh, facts and, That's all and, that. and falsifiability. We're all on it. a journey talk, and, and we want everyone to be on a journey. And it's So back to the blah, emailer's blah, 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 question, blah. how do you talk to somebody when reason and evidence is not admissible in their worldview? You don't. <laughs> well, that's easy. We sure spend a lot of time talking about nothing. Wow. Okay. No, yeah. What I do in those cases, in individual cases, point out the areas. Uh, just ask in their life, do they use, uh, which I know that they do, use reason and evidence in any other mundane parts of their life, and inevitably they do. And then I say, why is this domain suddenly everything's up in the? There are no truths. Everything's depends on your point of view for emotional things but not for you know any other area of your life if, right. so, if, yeah. if your sink is clogged if you have a cold there you you're just as much of a materialist as i am but then when it comes to things like making you feel good or existential issues then suddenly it's like the scientific method doesn't apply to those things on what basis are you choosing yeah uh, on what basis are you choosing you 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 are logical you recognize the importance of thinking categorically uh, asking for sufficient evidence for some things how do you decide what domains that's good for? Or even how they're making their their postmodern argument. They're they're providing reasons to get to you to the point where you reject these meta narratives that we've accepted. I mean, if if reason doesn't point you towards truth, if it's not a reliable guide, then what is what is the basis of their own? Yeah, the, the joke in academia is a, is a postmodernist is somebody who argues in the classroom that words have no inherent meaning and then uh, calls his wife to order a pizza when he gets home. Right, you know, right. They, yeah. they, they're perfectly well willing to use well, reference. And I think get them to think about what their own beliefs are because quite frankly, I think it's a very lazy theology. It's just easier to say, well, I'm on a journey. I don't have the answers. I'm, you know. I like to muddy up the waters. No, it, it's so much easier to not make any claims than it is to think about uh, what you really believe. So the next time somebody asks, tells me that they're in a conversation about these things, I'm going to ask them, is the conversation going anywhere? We are going to finish up here with another entry into the Gospel of Doubt. A few weeks back, we sent out a call for entries to the Gospel of Doubt, your chance to tell in roughly 200 words. And can we please keep it to 200 to 300 words, ladies and gentlemen? Um, he just said 300. Look, he just moved the goalpost. Now, well, 300 it, now is totally acceptable. Because I've three, given three, up three, one, extra 100 words. We've gotten a handful of people and—, and uh, more power to you, who have done it in 200 words or less or, or close to that. And then some who have sent me uh, a couple of pages. And it's great. And they're all good stuff, but condense, okay? And really, it's like writing a haiku. We can do a cap and trade system where if you go, uh, if you're under, you can donate those 50 words to somebody. Oh, there else. you go. Who's <laughs> more verbose. Uh, but uh, uh, so send in those. If you need details on the Gospel of Doubt, check out our website www.doubtcast.org Hello, my name is Tommy Holland and like many Christians I was raised in a Christian home and attended religious schools all through college. In my early 30s I joined an online forum peopled primarily with atheists hoping to convert some of the non-believers to Christianity. I thought the apologetic arguments I had learned growing up were fresh and powerful. I quickly learned they were anything but. Before long, the atheists were challenging me right back. When I tried to research answers, I soon found that the rationale for my religion was on shaky ground. I remembered the one question raised that first made me say, huh. Someone noted that in the epistles of Paul, he never referred to Jesus as, quote, coming back or returning. Paul only mentions Jesus coming, as if for the first time, which is what we would expect if Paul's Christ is based on mythology and not on an historical Jesus. That opened the floodgates of about a year of reading, asking questions, 
and desperately praying to God to reveal himself unequivocally. He never did. It all ended when I read George H. Smith's Atheism, The Case Against God, and the scales fell from my eyes. From there I learned that God cannot be demonstrated, and that faith is an unreliable method of obtaining knowledge. Almost a decade ago, I apologized to those Armine atheists I had tried so hard to convert, and I announced my own atheism, and I've not regretted my decision. All right, that's going to do it for us this week. Until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle slash doubtcast. Keep sending in those entries for Gospel of Doubt. Uh, check out our Facebook group, which is um, – we've got some good conversations going there, as well as on our blog on our website. If you have time and inclination, write us a review on iTunes and help spread the word. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next time for more of your skeptical guide to religion here on Reasonable Doubts. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.